Today on a novel review, a mantelpiece moment that took me to the edges of the Roman Empire. A novel that cooks up a storm of recipes, culture, and magical realism. And as always, what book have I pulled down from that perilous pile of towering books looming over me? All of that and more today on a novel review. Hello and welcome to the literature podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hello, hello, welcome back. Welcome to the beginning of another episode of A Novel Review, a podcast exploring the wonderful world of literature. My name is Seamus and I am your host. And for today's episode, a lovely little treat of a novel called Like Water for Chocolate. But before I jump into this book, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments, something to highlight from the week past. And in the last week, I visited this English town called Bath. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe it's maybe it's actually a city. I don't know. Not a town. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Anyways, I went there, and naturally, while in Bath, as I have a master's in ancient Roman history, I had to visit the namesake of the town, which are the Roman Baths, and they are a wonderfully preserved archaeological site. Now, as someone who has a deep love of history, I didn't need much convincing to go to a place like Bath. In fact, I would say it was more kind of the other way around, in that I went to Bath to see the Baths. But... If you, dear listener, are thinking that you will be in the area or have danced upon the knife's edge of decisions in regards to visiting Bath and the Baths, I honestly would thoroughly recommend it. The city has done a fine job of preserving and presenting the site as well. You know, information throughout the site is actually incredible and really enjoyable. And then there's sort of little things like the audio devices that you normally have to pay, what, like $5 for? They are free for all to carry. So that's just sort of like included in your ticket price. The baths themselves are heated by a natural spring that you can still see working. So there's bubbles rising to the surface, which is like just kind of cool to see. And then at the end, you also get the opportunity to drink some of the bath water. It is filtered. It's probably like you don't drink much, probably like 50 mils, and it's incredibly minerally and sort of lukewarm as well so it's a bit sort of unsettling for that reason but still really really cool it you know this is one of the better preserved sites of public roman baths on display and it sort of really pays testament to the standards of cleanliness they had in those times which is really quite remarkable considering that there was a clear decline through the middle ages especially in england you know, the evolution of just a toilet in the roman days to then i guess it's devolution is actually scary Go check that out if you're interested in that as well. It's 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 a clear and great example of you know how society can actually take a backward step. But anyways, I think we should move on. Housekeeping, as always, all the scripts from the episode are available on my website, just in case you know of anyone who has a hearing impairment who might get a kick out of a written version of the pod. So head along, they're all free for use for all to enjoy. Also, all the episodes are available on YouTube with closed captions if that is more your cup of tea. The recipe for a good book is a clear structure. Twelve chapters, each chapter headed by a recipe, a cultural feast to sink your teeth into, a fantastical love story, and of course, 
the wonderful absurdity of magical realism, all mixed together, baked to perfection, and served. This novel is quite frankly absurd, but it is wonderful. Like Water for Chocolate is one of those rare stories that you realise you are reading with a smile the entire time. It was written by a Mexican novelist, Laura Esquivel, and was first published in Mexico in 1989, and the English version was released in 1992. So let's start cooking this episode with an overview. Imagine a world where food transcends its mere culinary purpose and becomes a medium for conveying emotions, desires, and even magic. This captivating realm is precisely where Laura Esquivel's enchanting novel, Like Water for Chocolate, transports its readers. In this delectable tale of love, family, and tradition, Esquivel skillfully intertwines the art of cooking with the art of storytelling, leaving us with a literary masterpiece that tantalizes the senses and warms the heart. The novel follows a woman named Tita. As I said before, there are 12 chapters, each one a different month, but not the same year. Tita is in love with Pedro, but can't marry him due to her mother's upholding of family tradition that the youngest cannot marry and instead must take care of the mother until her death. Pedro, also in love with Tita, instead marries her sister, Rosara, in order just to be close to Tita. And that's how the story unfolds. All the trials and tribulations that happen over the years, and the best part is, Tita is only able to really express herself through her cooking, which is why at the start of every chapter, there is a recipe, which is then weaved into that particular chapter. Now, I can guess the first question on your lips, dear listener. Are the recipes real? Can you actually cook something, bake something? The short answer is, I don't know. But I mean, why would Laura put in fake recipes? That being said, one of the recipes, I think it was February's recipe to be exact, making a Chabella wedding cake calls for 17 eggs. Now, I am no cake expert. Well, I mean, like, I'm no expert in making cakes. Eating cake is another story. But I am no expert in cake making but 17 eggs does seem like a lot, but I digress. In the beginning of the story, we are learning that Tita will be unable to marry due to Mama Elena's cultural and traditional belief that the last daughter can't marry due to her need to look after her own mother until she dies. This upsets Tita muchly, mostly due to the fact that she is in love, but also because it exposes the ridiculousness of long-standing traditions that perhaps are outdated but also don't exactly make sense. Tita is confused because if she never marries and therefore never has kids, then she can never have children of her own to oppress and force to look after her in her old age. One of those obvious things that don't make sense, and yet the person enforcing it will never see reason, never see the stupidity for themselves. So, Tita's lover does what any sane man would do, does what any rational person would do. He marries Tita's sister, under the pretense that he wants, nay, he needs at least to be close to Tita. When it happens, you find it, or at least I found it, kind of funny. Comical, I guess I would say, because the whole book, the writing style, the prose, the stories, the ideas, are all just carried through this with this wonderfully whimsical nature, similar to that of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It felt really homely and friendly, despite the fact that there is a lot of darkness in this book. I mean, Pedro marries the sister of the woman he loves, which, 
As I said, I found quite whimsical, but only in the context of this story. In reality, that's kind of messed up because no doubt Tita's sister Rosara has feelings and is a human being herself. But she is not the central character to this book, so I'm not as emotionally invested in her, which is probably a terrible thing to say. But, you know, whatever. There is also the point made that Rosara knows that Tita loves Pedro, and still Rosara agrees to marry Pedro anyways. One aspect of this story I simply indulged in was the long passages about food. Food, as I said, is a way that Tita is able to express herself, and through her recipes you really see the love and attention that go into them. Tita believes that there is such a firm delicacy to recipes, and therefore food. She talks about how you have to educate your stomach to appreciate the care and love that goes into cooking. This is just one of the countless quotes that is a pleasure to read, talking about the way cooking and everything it brings can be something that transports you from the current place. And the quote goes, Tita enjoyed this step enormously. While the filling was resting, it was very pleasant to savour its aroma, for smells had the power to evoke the past bringing back sounds and even other smells that have no match in the present. Tita liked to take a deep breath and let the characteristic smoke and smell transport her through the recesses of her memory. End quote. Food and smells have the ability to transport us back. That particular dish that reminds us of a special memory, a particular flower that brings you to the forefront of your own thoughts, a memory so clear and precise it almost frightens you. This is such an overarching quote that is so integral to the story because while cooking, Tita embellishes in her past, but it's her love and emotions that she pours into her cooking that actually influence those who have eaten her dishes. This is the magical realist part of the novel. At one stage, Tita cooks a meal while having erotic thoughts about Pedro. This passes into the food and into another sister, Gertrudis, who becomes so flush with lust that she goes to take a shower to cool off but the water evaporates before it even touches her, and the shower catches fire. Gertrudis runs out naked into a field and is carried away by a captain who is drawn to the scent of her. Just one example of the wonderfully fun absurdity of the novel. This particular scene reminded me at the end of Patrick Suskind's novel Perfume, if anyone has read that, and just how the scent produced by Gronwy drives everyone into such a frenzy of lust. But what I think is most important is this metaphoric connection between food and love and how it is made explicit throughout the novel. Tita's culinary creations mirror her emotional state, creating a sensory experience that also resonates with readers. Her forbidden love for Pedro simmers through her dishes and her relationship with her sister and mother is expressed through the meals they share. Esquivel illustrates how food can be a language of love, passion and longing leaving us hungry for both sustenance and emotional connection. Because while this might be a magical realist novel, it does kind of work in reverse in the real world. That if you eat a ton of crap food, you yourself will feel bad, and I guess it can also work on the level of, look what I made you, I really care for you, because this is how much dedication and time and love I want to serve you, I want to serve you through food, etc, etc. Throughout the novel, Tita and Pedro do get closer by circumstance, and in fact, certain moments, like the birth of a child to Rosara and Pedro, actually brings Pedro and Tita together. But their entire love story did make me wonder about this idea of being close. Is it better to be close to someone yet unable to touch them, 
or would it be better just to never see them? Move away and try cast them from your mind. I don't have an answer for you, and I think that comes down to personal preference and whether it would, quite frankly, drive you insane. Tita's mother eventually dies in the novel, but continues to appear in Tita's life as a ghost, and this is another one of the novel's darker aspects. While it might seem fun and games, stealing looks and kisses over the years, the guilt and shame handed down from the mother has a lasting effect on Tita, and also highlights on the, I guess, cultural identity of women in Mexican society. But not just Mexican society, of course, all society, and how they had to struggle from the authoritarian rule that was expected of them to follow into something a touch more modern, but also how breaking free in the name of independence could still have a lasting and frankly haunting legacy on these women such as Tita. Just another layer to this delicious feast of a novel. How many food puns have I made today? I don't know. I don't want to know, but I will say this. It has been as fun writing and recording this novel as it was to read, and for that I'm going to rate this novel a 3.8 Michelin stars out of 5. So what am I reading this week? This week I am reading, well this week I've started to read a fantasy novel called Lord Fowl's Bane by Stephen Donaldson. It's the first in a series called The Chronicles of Thomas Covenant the Unbeliever, And so far, it is about a man, Thomas, who is a leper in the normal world of you and I, and is shunned from society, but then suddenly finds himself in a fantasy world where he is basically idolized as the savior for this place called The Land. The writing is first class, really nice sentences and seed setting, incredibly vivid and rich language to help. I think there is nine books or something in series in sets of three, so three lots of three, So I might read the first three and see if there is some call for some episodes on them because I'd love to do more sci-fi and fantasy. They are an incredibly rich, untapped and underappreciated areas of literature. So yeah, if you would like this, let me know. That would be a huge, huge help. Now, before I close out the show, if you have listened this far, please consider hitting those five stars. I would really appreciate it. Also, feel free to head along to the website and support the pod. And of course, thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. So I think it's time to end this episode. And today, to take us away, I think a bit of Jane Austen, who quite famously loved the town or city of Bath. And she says, I really believe I shall always be talking of Bath when I am at home again. I do like it so very much. Oh, who can ever be tired of Bath?